0: I would go to the, the, the prophets of the creationism movement, and I would check my work. Usually I had guessed the right answer. And this trail of hot gas from this galaxy stretched for 280,000 light years.
1: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to The 180 Cast.
0: Here's something that clearly doesn't fit a 6,000-year-old universe. There's no way that I can make any of this work, and and all the cards kind of come up.
1: Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. Back in episode 16, we took a look at uh, one PhD's journey from, PhD's journey from, um, a bona fide teacher of evolution to a proponent of young earth creationism, which is a pretty radical transition. And you might even remember that both of his parents taught at Berkeley. Um, he basically said he knew evolution inside and out, backwards and upside down. And that was Dr. Grady McMurtry. And he did make a lot of really interesting points to support his case. But ultimately, at the core of his 180 story was his conversion to Christianity, which led him to re-examine evolutionary theory. But today, I am very pleased to present the opposite 180 of someone who's gone from being a young Earth creationist to a vocal proponent of evolution. And I just want to let you know that this is not just about being, quote-unquote, fair and balanced. I personally think that we can't be... Uh, truly grounded in almost any belief until we've examined both sides. And by looking at people who have changed their minds, I think we're really opening up a map and looking at where we might have taken wrong turns and trying to persuade people that were right or just in navigating the issue ourselves. So my next guest has had his perspective featured in the documentary, We Believe in Dinosaurs. He's a writer for BioLogos and Medium.com and I believe holds a BA in physics He's also working on a book on science denial and fundamentalism, uh, David McMillan. Did I get that right?
0: Uh, just about. It's a it's a BS in physics. BS uh, in physics, BA, of
1: course. <laughs> I'm so used to I'm so used to talking to people with BAs, so
0: Yeah. No worries.
1: That makes sense. I don't think there's such a thing.
0: No, I, I don't think so either. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
1: Yes, thank you for joining me. Um, Hey, just a note to the listener before we get started, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated, and we release a new episode every Friday. We alternate between in-depth interviews just like this one and post-interview analysis, as well as exploring some of the big ideas that are shaping our world as we speak. So if you have a friend who would find this episode of interest, go ahead and hit pause and share it with them. And with that, onward. Okay, David. You used to be a young earth creationist. I stumbled on your article on medium because medium gives me push notifications that I haven't turned out for turned off for one of my email accounts. And I was like, what? Medium just dropped this amazing story into my lap. (laughs) So, okay, so I and I read a little bit, but take me back to that mindset. Why were you a young earth creationist? What were your reasons? What was your upbringing?
0: Right. So, uh, like a lot of uh, like a lot of homeschooled uh, conservatives in the United States, um, I, I was raised uh, with an understanding of biblical creationism, creation science. Uh, we grew up very, very dedicated to the idea that the Earth was young, that mainstream science was, if not a conspiracy, something like one, and that the only true ideas about origins, about the age of the the earth, about what happened to the dinosaurs, climate change, all of those elements, it could only be found through the Bible. It could only be found through interpreting the Bible in a particular way, according to, you know, a, a certain group of people, these these creation scientists, uh, people like Ken Ham, uh, certainly people like Mr. McMurtry, um, all of these, these were the people who uh, kind of handed down the truth from on high. And uh, I was a very, very vocal proponent of that, much more than, you know, even members of my family. I was very invested. I started blogging about creationism and creation science very, very early, uh, really right when blogging began to become a thing.
1: So how old were you at that point? uh,
0: I believe I was uh, 14 or 15 when I published some of my first blog posts about creation and creationism. Uh, I'd already been, you know, invested for a long time at that point. I, uh, I had a lot of contacts with Answers in Genesis, uh, some contacts with Creation Ministries International, uh, with the Institute for Creation Research. Uh, my family got all of its curriculum from uh, from from homeschooling websites and creationist websites and publishers that promoted uh, a young Earth platform, and that's something that you know shaped my first exposure to science, my first exposure to. Uh, to to all of these issues and all these questions.
1: Okay. So in terms of that curriculum, was it just teaching, like, this is the only answer? Or was it also, did it explore evolutionary theory at all, even if just to rebut it?
0: Right. So it was very, very important that we had uh, an ability to give an answer to to be able to combat what we viewed as uh, you know, dangerous evolutionary teachings. That was super, super critical. And so it, I had a very, very thorough, um, thorough survey of evolutionary theory, or I thought it was thorough, of evolutionary theory, a survey of, you know, mainstream geology. I understood mainstream cosmology, not down to the nitty gritty, but the basic ideas so that I could come in and say, well, that's not true, and this isn't true, and here's the way it really ought to be. Uh, the Some of the curriculum, some of the materials that we had uh, took a very, very uh, aggressive stance against evolution. Uh, not only was it bad science, they said, it was bad theology, and it was completely incompatible with the Bible, with Christianity, with salvation. Uh, other stuff, other uh, textbooks and curriculum and, and documentation maybe didn't take quite as hard of a stance. It said certainly evolution is false. Certainly, deep time is false. uh, And and it's all very unscientific. We're not saying that it couldn't be fit to the Bible if it were true. It just isn't true. And so there, there wasn't all a very, very strident approach. But definitely, all of the material I was exposed to had a, you know, predominant, this is this is the truth. And this is a lie.
1: So when you were blogging, did you go out independently and explore some of the scientific papers that are from the evolutionary point of view to e- examine those yourselves or did yourself or did you more just take the tack of I'm going to have these other people interpret that for me.
0: Well you know one of the good things or one of the very strong things about creation science as a movement that one of the reasons it's so powerful and it's able to connect so well to so many people is they maintain a very close connection to breaking news and news stories. So every time that I saw you know a new article about a a, a new kind of feathered dinosaur or um, an article about uh, Tiktaalik, this fish with legs. Any, any new news story or anything, I was going to eat that up. I was going to find out what the mainstream view was. And I had enough training as a creation science uh, aficionado. To, to start to form the arguments and say, well, that can't be true because of this, or clearly this scientist wasn't paying attention to such and such. And I would go to my, you know, the, the, the prophets of the creationism movement, uh, to Ken Ham's website, to uh, these, other, these other groups, and I would check my work. I would say, all right, I, I figure that these scientists who say they discovered a feathered dinosaur, they must be off because of this or this or this. Let's see what Answers in Genesis has to say. Usually I was right. Usually, I had guessed the right answer, and uh, so that made me feel like I would, I was, uh, I was very, very strong. I, I knew all everything. I had all the answers, and I was ready to, uh, you know, to defend creationism and show everyone why evolution wasn't true.
1: So you are very dedicated. How did you begin to change your mind on this? What What started the wheels turning?
0: Well, you know, it was a it was a really long process, and there were, there's one particular pivotal moment. Uh, the movie that uh, you mentioned before, the documentary we believe in dinosaurs does a really good job of kind of crescendoing up to the moment. But th- there was there was a one moment where everything sort of flipped, but that was only made possible by a lot of build up. I maintain my view very very uh, strongly, very dogmatically. Um, even through college. And the reason I, I, went to, I went to a secular university, I didn't go to a Christian college, even though that was one of the things I considered. I went to uh, you know, a mainstream public university. I, I went in to get a degree in physics. Uh, I wanted to have the credentials to be able to you know, be someone like uh, you know, a, a, a Jason Lyle or like uh, you know, McMurtry or someone else who, oh, you know this person has a degree, this person's a creationist, and they're gonna help to defend it, and, and that was my goal. I went in um, believing that if I got my degree, I'd also have the tools so I could answer the tough questions that maybe the answers from Ken Ham, they didn't make sense. Maybe the answers that were published in, in Answers Magazine or published by a Creation Ministries International or, or by any of these other organizations, they didn't seem complete. They didn't really do it for me, and so I wanted to be able to come up with the answers on my own and not have to depend on someone else telling me. And it was through that process that I started to question and I, I started to say, well, if if evolution is really a lie and if creation is uh, creation is, is really the facts, if, if, if the earth is only a few thousand years old, then I should be able to prove it. I should be able to see this and this and this. I should be able to make uh, to make predictions about what I should discover and it should work. And what I found over you know years of you know arguing with people online and um, and doing research uh, on, on my own, uh, reading papers, uh, looking for holes, uh, is that I had to do more and more work to to keep the creation creationist narrative intact. I had to do more and more uh, cherry picking, and I had to add new ideas, and it just it was harder and harder to make it work. And uh, at the same time, I began to see that mainstream science really was fitting together well, even in areas where you wouldn't expect it to and that that uh, gradual that sort of evolution of uh, ideas is is really what put me in the position where when I finally saw some very obvious evidence, uh, there was no reason for me to 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 hold, hold to creationism anymore.
1: Could you give maybe an example or two of what you discovered while you were? trying to fit things into the creation narrative. Like you mentioned, cherry picking. Do you have any examples of that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things that is uh, that, that I always said, one of the arguments that I was taught to say that I repeated over and over is that you can't get new information that uh, that mutations and natural selection and all these other things, they can't produce new information. And so you have to have a creator who creates genetic code with perfect information and uh and then if there's variation it's variation within what's already created and that was something that i just i clung to it, it, it was one of the most fundamental arguments that we would always use no matter what the any time that there was any talk about evolution or about a new species being formed that were different from another species we would always say it's always the same information and I, I wanted to be able to prove that and I wanted to be able to communicate that. And so I started looking into the actual, uh, you know, the actual genetics. Again, I didn't even have my degree at this time, but I had enough research chops that I could at least try to muddle through it myself. And when I looked, I, I saw that the entire paradigm of saying a limited amount of information or, or information cannot be created, it, it's, it just came from a position that had no idea what it was talking about. You can create new information very easily and you can have a, a, a cell or a, an organism like a bacteria that duplicates part of its genome and then that secondary part, the new part that's been created, it adjusts and before you know it, you have a new protein being synthesized or uh, a new ability that the bacteria didn't have. And it's something that happens very easily. It's observable. It's, it's happening right here in the present. Of course, the follow-on argument to that would be to say, well, um, well, that's it's still a bacteria, so nothing's really changed. But that wasn't the point. The point was that it did have new information. It did have something that wasn't there before, and it wasn't something that was programmed in to begin with. And since that was observable on so many levels, and, and it, it could be seen very, very simply, it, it made me question whether these paradigms were right. Another example that um, that really, really pushed me, uh, sort of, it was one of the, one of the things that, that kind of built up too much evidence for me to continue explaining away, um, is the way that uh, stitching together the, the genetic history of different life on Earth, if you take all dogs, for example, you can put all of the DNA from different dogs into a, into a computer program, and it will tell you which breeds are more, more closely related to other breeds. And uh, it, will follow the, it will follow the tree back and sort of create a little tree of life. And that was fine for us. We believed that all dogs were related. They had, they had come from, you know, one original dog kind or I guess wolf kind that got it made. And so having that tree was fine. But um, the problem was when you put other animals that we didn't think should be related and you put them into the same program, uh, it also said which ones were more closely related than others. And I tried to explain that away initially by saying, well, sure, you're just putting data into the program. You're telling the program to make a tree and it's going to make a tree. It's going to find a way to fit the data. But the problem was these trees, what was related to what what wasn't as closely related to something else, it matched what had been predicted by paleontologists and and geologists and all these other researchers decades and, and even in some cases a century before genetics was even really a thing. And so that was another area where it wouldn't make it wouldn't match the tree of life that's generated by genetics wouldn't match the tree of life generated by paleontology uh, unless they were both reflective of a real common history.
1: Okay, so do you look back on any particular moment? I think you hinted at it when you were talking about the documentary, like a particular moment where you were like, gosh, I've got to change my mind on this and adopt this other platform.
0: Right. Well, you know, I don't think I ever would have been able to reach that point if it hadn't been for, you know, a lot of that gradual, you know, reconsidering one thing and seeing, well, this could fit, but I'm just, I'm just going to think that it doesn't for now. Um, You know, so a lot of that buildup happened. And I also got to hear a lot of, of you know strong Christians, um, you know people who were very devout, uh, very religious, very uh, you know very strong in their in their beliefs about God and about the cross and about salvation. Who even though they were such strong Christians, they accepted deep time and they accepted evolution, and it was something that that didn't seem to conflict. And so I, it got me to the point of being ready to accept new evidence because before then. I felt like accepting evidence for deep time and I was going to turn my back on the Bible, turn my back on Christianity. And I I wasn't willing to do that. So I really uh, it it took a lot before I could finally say, okay, this is this is good evidence. Um, The evidence that I ended up stumbling across, um, one of the things that had always fascinated me and always been kind of difficult for me to understand is how you get light from. You know galaxies and stars that are so far away from earth and how you get light to earth in only a few thousand years uh there have been yeah, a lot so i've of,
1: wondered the same thing
0: right right so there were a lot of arguments to explain that some people said well maybe the speed of light was faster in the past and that didn't work um they said maybe the universe is a white hole and uh and and there's some sort of time dilation where time is running at different speeds uh, that was actually the very first problem I modeled once I got my hands on a supercomputer um, in, in college and and found out that that didn't work either. And and there were all of these different models and none of them see it really seemed to work, but I was, I was sure I'd be able to come up with something. And after all, I was studying physics. I'd, I'd come up with something eventually. Um, but one of the, one of the really critical elements of that question um, sure you can say, maybe there's a way for light to get here from distant stars. Um, but at the very least, we're going to all agree that what we're seeing is something that's just as young as Earth. You're not looking at something that is billions of years old. You're looking at something that even if the light gets here instantly, it, what you're seeing is 6,000 years old, just like Earth is. Um, and I saw a galaxy that was falling into a gravitational well was formed by a supercluster. So you have a supercluster, you have all these galaxies that are very tightly bound, and so that it has immense gravity and there's a lot of dust that gets packed in between the galaxies. It's a lot thicker than uh, the usual intergalactic medium. And this particular galaxy is falling into this galaxy cluster. And I saw a photo taken by Hubble. And you can see that the light of the stars in this galaxy is being, are being ripped away by this gas. It's like it's running into a, um, it's like a, a dandelion and a hairdryer. It's, it's, it's just being blown away. All these stars are being blown away by um, the, the pressure of this hot gas. And I looked at that and I thought, well, here's something that's moving and God could have created it while it was moving and that's fine. But, but how far has it come? And the thing that really did it, there was a, a photograph taken by the Chandra Observatory, and it showed a trail of hot gas from this galaxy. And this trail stretched for 280,000 light years. Uh, it was it was just this massive trail, like uh, like like skid marks across the across the sky. And I looked at that and I said, well, that's not something that can make sense. You can't you can you can't have something that's moved 280,000 light years. In 6,000 years, no matter how fast it's moving, it can go faster than the speed of light. So it was just it was something that because everything else had built up to that point, it was like, well, here's something that clearly doesn't fit a 6,000 year old universe. Uh, there's no way that I can make any of this work. And, and all the cards kind of tumbled.
1: OK, so what did you do from there? You mentioned that it, evolutionary theory seemed to be compatible with Christianity, did this impact your faith at all?
0: Well, that, that's that's an inter- interesting question for you to ask because it really did. Um, I had lots of examples of, of people who were Christians who could still accept evolution, but I just didn't know how that would work. Uh, it got me to the point where I was able to accept it, but I didn't know how to put faith together. The reason for that, I think, is being homeschooled and growing up with creation science, such an integral part of Christianity, an integral part of faith. There wasn't ever a way to divorce the two, and everything that I learned about salvation, everything that I learned about sin and and morality, and what death is, and how salvation is supposed to work, uh, supposed to work. All of these elements. Uh, were tied into this 6,000-year-old, literal, uh, historical Adam and Eve, uh, historical fall, uh, a flood. And all of these elements were just so tightly tied that when I tried to figure out what faith looked like without it, uh, it really started to fall apart. I, had, I struggled a lot to come up with, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian if I don't have this foundation? Um, and it wasn't so much that I couldn't find a foundation because I did and it was fine. It's just that I had been taught that there wasn't another foundation and that there wasn't any other way to look at it. And so that teaching and that belief that evolution was just incompatible with Christianity was really what led me to almost reject Christianity just because I couldn't reject evolution anymore.
1: So what, what happened then in your faith life?
0: uh it, it took a it took a long time um i i made a lot of uh i made some poor decisions i i alienated some of my you know family members and um and and it was it was really really tough uh there there are people who are telling me that i was you know leading others astray um that i was uh that i was hurting other people's relationship with god that i was being a bad example that i everything that could be thrown at me from family members from parents everything else. It was really hard because I didn't have good answers. I couldn't just say, oh, well, here's how I figured it out because I hadn't figured it out yet. I just knew that creation science was was bunk. And so, um, you know, after, you know, I, I read a lot, I, I spent time with, with other Christians that understood that, that these things were tough and it, it wasn't an easy thing to muddle through, especially coming from my background and uh and i read uh, you know books by christian authors who accepted deep time who who explained how things could work Uh, one of the big things that helped was was reading a lot of older theologians who who had written even before evolution became a thing uh, before darwin who wrote about things in a way that was compatible and i saw that the the specific brand of young earth creationism christianity that i'd been raised with was a more recent thing that it had kind of grown up in a, in response to evolution. And it wasn't really Orthodox Christianity in the first place. And so getting a, more of an exposure to, to earlier Christian writers, and then to, you know, to Christians I respected who understood the issues, uh, helped me to f- see a path forward and to reconstruct faith in a way that made sense to me. And that, um, you know, that certainly didn't run into any problems with, uh, with origins or with Genesis.
1: Could you give maybe an example of what kind of things you were reading from these early theologians, like in a nutshell? Sure.
0: Um, you know, going back to even uh, St. Augustine, which is, you know, one of the earliest uh, prolific writers in Christianity. Um, he had, uh, we had, we had talked about St. Augustine previously, um, and as, uh, as creationists, and said, well, he believed that, you know, the universe had been created instantly, so therefore that was that was, uh, not, necessar- that was not compatible with deep time or evolution. Uh, he didn't even believe in six days. He thought it was even faster than that. So, uh, so there's a quote from St. Augustine, and uh, it, it says this, or he said this, usually even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, the other elements of the world, about the motions and orbits of the stars, uh, and so forth. Uh, But it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-Christian to hear a Christian claiming to give the meaning of Holy Scripture to talk nonsense on these topics. We should all take means to prevent such an embarrassing situation. Um, if, If these outside people find a Christian mistaken in a field which they know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinion about the Bible, how are they going to believe the Bible in matters concerning the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven when they think the Bible is full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have learned from experience?
1: Fascinating. So that's Thank
0: a, you. That's a quote. Yeah, I and I love that quote and so yeah. I knew uh Irenaeus, one of the earliest fathers, he had said that the um, the days of Genesis were uh, were periods of time, and that that it was it should be interpreted more allegorically rather than interpreted as uh, as literal history. Um, the uh, Isaac Newton was someone that we had always raised up as an example of a Christian scientist, someone who was who believed in science who made all these discoveries, and uh, and yet was was a Christian or a creationist, and and it turned out he wasn't a creationist either. He had a letter where he said that um, obviously the discussion of days in Genesis. Is, is an accommodation of, of what they understood and what, the, what Moses was trying to explain and wasn't intended to convey scientific truth. Uh, it was more like a parable or, or, again, an allegory than something that was historical. And um, you know, so seeing a lot of these examples, especially people that I'd thought of as creationists who weren't, um, that was, those were some of the things that, that helped me to see, okay, there's another way to look at this.
1: So what is your view of scripture now? Do you believe in inerrancy and that it's just being interpreted wrong? Or do you believe that there are some things that have changed along the way and that may account for some of the discrepancies that you see between the science and what you read in the Bible?
0: So I don't see the Bible as being inconsistent with, uh, with science at all. Um, I just, I, I think that it, it mostly comes down to a question of interpretation and uh, one of the things that, that kept me from seeing that from, for so, so long is that the, I'd always believed there was one interpretation or there was a plain and obvious interpretation of the Bible and that it was basically whatever Ken Ham said. And, um, and, that, was the, and, and that was just the assumption that there is one simple and straightforward interpretation. And questioning that mindset, questioning that uh, really was a big hurdle because every time I tried, I would run into well, if 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 you think the Bible should be interpreted a different way, um, you're trying to add something. And the question I really should have been asking was, who gave Ken Ham the authority to make the interpretation in the first place? Uh, and that really was 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 where it fell. So uh, you understand, you know, I understand the the Book of Genesis um, and and even other parts throughout the you know throughout the Old Testament. It's a blend of of poetry, and parable, and and history, and uh, and prophecy, and theology, uh, it, there's a lot to unpack. It's not a simple, this is history, this is uh, prophecy, and we're done. Um, and, and there's a lot to unpack throughout all of the Bible, and, and if you try to limit it to, oh, this is just a historical thing, you can miss the entire theological point that the Bible's making, and, uh, and it, you really end up getting Um, shut into a very narrow mindset when the Bible is a lot bigger than just, oh, this thing happened and then this thing happened to these other people.
1: I encountered something similar long after I left home and even after I left college when looking at the Bible. And I started exploring some other perspectives that I totally just stumbled on um, because I didn't know... These people, like their full theology and their doctrines and, and, and whatnot. But it blew my mind when I realized that there are actually different interpretations of many, many things, if not most things in the Bible, like the book of Revelation. Most, I would say f- fundamentalist evangelicals, if, if we're going to use that term, believe, you know, pre millennial that there's going to be a thousand year rain like a literal thousand year rain on earth and there's going to be a rapture and things like that and i took that as as a teenager to be well that's just the way it is like my perspective just just leaps off the page that really is a it's kind of a bumpy wild ride right when you realize that there's different ways it it kind of unsettles you doesn't it that there's different ways to interpret things
0: it really does and it um that's i had the exact same experience you know i was raised with a a dispensational kind of premillennial pre-tribulation approach to things and and maybe there was a little bit of wiggle room and interpretation here and there but the basic story is going to be the same no matter what and uh and you know then i i i stumble upon this entirely new world of, of different interpretations. And this is how these people thought it was for, for, you know, 700 years. And, um, and, and it really was a bumpy ride because one of the, you know, you, you mentioned inerrancy before was, was the Bible inerrant in its original autographs. And, um, and that question itself, just, it, it kind of misses the, not, no, no offense to you, but like Focusing on inerrancy, like a lot of churches do, kind of misses the question of interpretation in the first place. Because even if we assume the Bible is inerrant, um, even if that's something that we're not even going to argue, you can still have multiple people who have wildly different interpretations. And so, affirming inerrancy doesn't do you any good unless you have a way to interpret it that's also inerrant. And uh, and that's where you run into problems.
1: If it weren't for you going to college and studying physics do you think you would have gotten on this journey to begin with or would you still be blogging about young earth creationism Uh,
0: that's a really good question it's not one that I've asked myself before Um, I I don't think I ever was was going to uh, do anything other than pursue you know a science degree I, I really really like science creation science is what got me interested in science in the first place and So so science was just always something that I wanted to study, that I wanted to get into. And uh, so I I, it would be very, very hard to imagine uh, a world where I hadn't gone into some kind of a scientific discipline. But, um, you know, I always wanted to be able to give answers. I always wanted to be able to to give a an account, um, you know, always be ready to give an account for, uh, for the hope that you have. That was something that was really important to me. And I do remember even very, very early on, it was the discovery of uh, of Tiktaalik, which I mentioned before, this, this fishapod, a fish that had, um, you know, nostrils halfway up its head and, and flippers that could u- be used to walk around. Um, I called my contacts at Answers in Genesis because my, my attempts to debate people online had just been horribly, horribly uh, disastrous. And I called my contacts. I got on the phone with David Menton, who's this, um, you know, a, a PhD uh, who's, who's very, very well regarded in creationist circles. And I started asking him questions. Uh, can you explain why why this isn't a missing link? And his answers just made no sense. Uh, and I, I remember feeling, you know, early, early, before I had, had ever even, I don't think I'd even taken physics at that point. Um, this doesn't work. I need to be able to give a better answer. And so I always wanted to be able to give an answer that would be convincing. And, uh, and I think that drive is something that, would have carried me through regardless.
1: What do you make of this dichotomy that is set up by many people that faith and science are incompatible? Because you seem to have, if you want to use the word, reconciled them or you see them as fitting together. What do you make of how many evolutionists tend to see them as diametrically opposed?
0: Right, right. Um, you know, it's it, the dichotomy is something that really benefits people on the opposites on the far, far end of the spectrum. And honestly, it's something that benefits um, the young earth creationist groups more than anything else. Um, I, there are certainly people like Richard Dawkins uh, who have have really you know, profited off of, of making it a big divide. But for the most part, the people who get the greatest benefit out of preaching the dichotomy are the young earth creationists like Ken Ham. Um, and I, I know I keep picking on him. He's the guy that I, I used to write for his website. I, I helped, you know, I raised money so that I could uh, help build the creation museum. Um, you know, so I, I pick on him a little bit. But the he really profits off of this dichotomy. Because if people believe that there's no way to reconcile the Bible with mainstream science, then they're going to turn to creation science ministries and creation science organizations to get their answers and to find out what to believe and to to, to get the books and the resources and everything that they can learn uh, to protect them from mainstream science. It's a very, very, it's kind of a a protectionist approach where these creation science organizations say um, that, you know, evolution is going to take your kids away from you. Uh, mainstream science is going to take away your faith that like Ken Ham has a book that already gone basically why your kids are already in the clutches of of secular humanist science and and you need us, you need the creation science organizations so that we can give you the answers and protect you from the bad guys and but wouldn't
1: um, wouldn't but wouldn't Ken Ham and associated scientists argue that they're not pitching faith against science, that they're only pitching faith against what they see as bad science. Yeah.
0: Well, the way they phrase it, they call it religion versus religion because they say that's, that evolution is religion. And, um, you know, so they go down that route, but whether they call it faith versus science or faith versus faith or science versus science, um, they're definitely painting a picture of a, a, a boogeyman, a, 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 a great, Lurking danger in mainstream science that's going to that's going to uh, take you away from God. That's going to um, that's going to try and refute the Bible. And so that that sort of us versus them mentality uh, is plays very well under the hands of, of you know some of the more militant atheists who will say, "Oh, um, yeah, faith and science uh, can't be reconciled." Just look at Ken Ham.
1: What do you think are the biggest things that are holding? people such as the people that you grew up with and associated with holding people back from embracing evolution? Is it this idea that there's only one interpretation of the Bible, or do you think that they have a somewhat firmer foundation in the kinds of science and the examples that they see or experiments that they see as fitting with that interpretation?
0: Um, what I've seen over and over again, uh, particularly when when you try to challenge some of these ideas, um, is this, uh, you know, it, it's a very, very religious argument. It's a very, very faith, you know, faith centered argument. And, and there's a lot of fear. And I, I don't use that. I try not to use that horribly. But there's a lot of fear that, um, you know, if we don't have creation science, uh, we're going to lose our footing. We're going to lose our faith. And uh, a lot of the moral Positions, particularly in conservative circles, where you have you know very strong um, you know socially conservative values, um, all they they think that all of those things are going to be lost if they give in to mainstream science and, and mainstream ideas, and so a fear is just a huge part of that. Uh, you know, to some extent, it. I can see why Um, I mean, I look at myself, I I was raised, you know, obviously very, you know, socially conservative and um, and fiscally conservative. And I've I've changed a lot of those positions along the way, kind of been parallel. But, uh, you know, so I'm I'm not the greatest poster child there because they can say, hey, look at David. He believed evolution. And now, you know, he thinks that we should uh, give immigrants health care. Um, you know, so that's the kind of thing that, um, that, uh, you know, just, uh, I, honestly, I try to pick the least, the least offensive, uh, <laughs> but, um, that, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing, you know, I'm, I'm not the greatest example, but, um, uh, but that's a, it's a lot of fear. Um, and it's a lot of concern and it's, and it seems like legitimate concern that without, uh, creationism, that's going to, that's going to fall apart. Uh, I've because never... it's a
1: cohesive worldview, right? Right. Because it would feel like giving up a part of your worldview, almost like giving up a, limb or something
0: right And, and it's 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 constructed that way it's constructed as a coherent whole so if you take one piece out nothing else fits anymore and uh when when that happens like everything really does fall apart that's why it took me so long to reconstruct what i believe because it really all fell apart uh when i tried to take out this this foundation of of creationism and it's the same way if you know, um, anytime that you remove one of these bricks from the, the wall that is um, this worldview, that, that everything else starts to crumble. And that's a very scary thing. It was scary for me. I didn't know it, how to how to be a good person anymore. I, I didn't know what to base anything on. And um, and so it, it would have been very easy at that point to to run the other way and to say okay well i, I was wrong i was wrong i'm just going to believe everything and and not to look at closely anymore uh, that would have been very easy i think that's that's the response that a lot of people have um i can say very definitively that um it's not the science uh the the creation science or, or the creation science uh teachings and arguments um they're really bad and uh and the only way to hold to them and i'll uh, you know i'm uh, I, it's, it's a bold statement, I know, but the only way to hold to them is to have a philosophical commitment to them that doesn't, uh, that's independent of the facts. And so that's, that's where, you know, that's where I have some strong disagreements with people who say that, you know, they believe in creationism because of the science. Um, cause I, I've been there and I, I know it's, I know it's, it's washed up.
1: It's interesting that you got into the idea of bad arguments, because I was going to ask you, that's my next question, is I was going to ask you, what do you think are, maybe just two, pick two, of the worst arguments that you've seen from the creation side? And then maybe give what you see as a poor argument from the evolutionary side that you think, ah, no, there's better arguments to be made.
0: Uh, Sure. So, I, I will I will um, avoid being too uh, harsh. I could give examples like some of the things that Kent Hovind has said, for example you know, uh, and and stuff like that, but that would probably be unfair. Um, so I'll I'll stick to arguments that are uh, that are that are you know close to sort of the more mainstream organized creationism. Um, one of the one of the very bad arguments uh, in creationism is one that I mentioned before about uh, information. Um, the idea that you can't get new information, um, that you can't have you know, new, new abilities that are acquired by an organism over its lifetime, um, that's, that's, that's a really bad argument uh, because it's so easily disproven. You, you can take numerous examples of, of bacteria that show a new ability that wasn't programmed in to begin with and uh, the only answer that a creationist can give after being confronted with that obvious evidence is to say, oh, well, there's still bacteria. So nothing's really changed. And again, that's not the point. The point is that they do have new information. And once you have new information in the, in the genome, then natural selection can break it off and, and, and you can start developing something new somewhere else. Um, another, uh, another really, really poor argument that I've seen in, you know, in a lot of places uh, from creationists, is the idea that that radiocarbon dating, and this is goes away from biological evolution or you know evolutionary biology into more the question of deep time, but it's the idea that radiometric dating is inconsistent, and that you can, if you try to use chemical uh, you know uh, uh, radioactive chemicals to to date rocks or to date meteorites or to date uh, lava flows from the you know from the deep past. Uh, those but that's it's unreliable it's all the crapshoot you can just pick the data that you want and run with it and and that's that's a line of reasoning that i i quickly discovered was also very bad because um the what you see when you look at actual uh you know radiometric dates and in actual research is that there's tremendous consistency Uh, you know you can have a a particular you know set of rock layers and you use different different dating methods on a bunch of the different rocks all the way up and down and not only do the the dates cluster very very closely but they're all stacked up in the right order so you're never going to have a rock on top that gives an older date than a rock on the bottom uh and that and that follows in every single example And so uh, claiming that, oh, these are inconsistent because of one or two anomalies that um, usually have very good explanations is is a very easily disproven argument. And uh, and and so it, it for me, it was one of the things that I said, Okay, are they even being honest here?
1: Okay, so what is an argument that you see evolution evolutionists making that may not be the best argument?
0: Uh, well, one, one thing just, and I'm going to nitpick here because I get to, uh, I, would <laughs> call, uh, I would never call, I would never call neither myself nor mainstream scientists would, would ever use, will use the term evolutionist. You might say an evolutionary biologist or a sure. physicist um, just because evolution is something that happened and it's something that continues to happen. It's not its own branch of study. So you wouldn't, you know, you, someone might say I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a, a relativistic physicist, and I study mm-hmm. gravity. So, a proponent
1: I say, of a proponent sure, of evolution. Sure. And I, way
0: the way only that. reason that I nitpick about that it's 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 part of a language that is often used. Not saying you're using it, but is often used to kind of set up a, this dichotomy that I was talking about before. Um, but yeah, mm, fair point. Skipping over that, um, the uh, some of the arguments that maybe show a, a lack of understanding of of creationism um, would be you know to to take. Uh, examples of natural selection like um, you can you know we can you know point to instances where you know a population has diverged and so you have a uh, uh, you know you have a particular species of sheep and uh, then this other species of sheep in another place uh, gets to the point over you know a few hundred years that it can no longer breed and so you have two new species and um, and so lots of times science educators or science advocates will hold that up and say, see, here's evolution happening. And they're right, that is evolution happening, but it's it's not something that creationists typically dispute. Creationists agree you can have speciation events. And in fact, that's their whole theory. They believe in a hyper-evolution after Noah's flood, where you know only a few thousand land animals on the ark uh, turned into, you know, tens of thousands of new species in a few hundred years. Um, so so they certainly accept natural selection. And uh, and speciation as as viable um, viable processes, and so it's not useful to use that particular argument. Um, and uh, as far as another argument is concerned, um, probably you know people will point to how you know uh, comets are, how old comets are, and how comets are dated, and um, and ideas about where comets come from, and they'll try to say that this proves that the solar system is very old. Uh, there are a lot of arguments like that that talk about, um, you know, ages of stars and um, and the ages of different objects in the solar system. And usually that kind of misses the point that, you know, most creationists believe God kind of just made it that way. And so uh, if you if you get bogged down in trying to determine the age of different things in the solar system, which is it's a fun thing to do. And I like doing it, too. But uh, it's it's not really going to be very convincing because, creationists are just going to say, well, God, God made it that way. So what's what's the big deal?
1: Interesting. I want to circle back really quickly to what you said earlier when you were discussing reconstructing your worldview. Is there any advice? Let's say there's a 20 year old who's taking a lot of science classes, and they're changing their mind on creationism and thinking, Evolutionism, or sorry, evolutionary theory, seems to fit the data best. And they grew up in a similar background to it sounds like you and I in you know evangelical circles. What advice would you give to them? Because it does seem like there is a little bit of truth to what Ken Ham was saying in terms of once you accept that, it seems to pry people away from Christianity.
0: Right. Um, that it's, it's a good question. Um, and the, it was interesting enough, the people who made the film, uh, we believe in dinosaurs, they've, they've asked me uh, like a dozen times, what would you have said to yourself? Um, you could have taught yourself 10 or 12 years ago, um, and to, to kind of prepare yourself for this. And it's, it's, it's a tough question. Um, that the the uh, the answer I think is you know always, never stop asking questions and never take your own confusion to be uh, evidence that you're headed down the wrong trail. So if something doesn't make sense. Find out why it makes why it doesn't make sense. You're smart enough to figure it out. You can ask questions, and if people start pushing back and saying you shouldn't ask questions about this, that's probably something to, to take a closer look at. That's that's probably a reason to ask more questions. And that's that's I think the, the the critical element that's at the core of it. Uh, I'd also say you know please 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 talk to people who are outside the the immediate group. That you, you know, that you are usually exposed to and and get other perspectives, get perspectives from people who, uh, you know, who live in other countries, who, who grew up in different ways. They can, you know, certainly people who are Christians, people who are, you know, who, who share the same faith as you, share the same beliefs as you. But Uh, give them a you know listen to them and see what they have to say uh, because it there's a very good likelihood that they've seen a lot of things that you've never seen and they've they've been exposed to things that you've never been exposed to and they have a different paradigm for viewing the world and being exposed to that is going to help you see that there's there is a middle path and there's more than just one interpretation
1: so humility but not necessarily insecurity
0: Right, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to put it and a lot more concise than I did.
1: <laughs> no, I really appreciated that answer. I ask essentially the same basic question near the end of every podcast, which is if you had somebody from the opposite perspective sitting across from you and you only had like a minute to get the gears turning and start convincing them that the way that they're thinking is incorrect, and that your current position is the right one. If you had a young Earth creationist in front of you, and you had like one minute, like, what's your trump card? What card do you play to get them thinking? And you know what? What's your best play here?
0: Right. Um, so, so there's a very simple question uh, that I that I like to that I like to ask, and I like to hear asked, and I like to hear answered too. And uh, the question is, you know if you had to imagine the kind of evidence, whether it's one piece of evidence or dozens of pieces of evidence, if you had to kind of of, of imagine what evidence would convince you to change your mind, um, can you do it? That's the question. Because if you can come up with evidence that's, that's realistic, that could change your mind, then at least you're open. But if you can't come up with evidence that would change your mind, with evidence that would make you reconsider, that would make you question your interpretations, um, then chances are no evidence would convince you, and you're really tied to something that's that you're not taking a close look at. That's that's my question. Uh, that's the question that I would always ask, and um, you know, I, I like to hear it answered.
1: You're determining whether or not they're a critical thinker, essentially.
0: It, it's it's not so much for my benefit. Uh, that's not why, why I'm asking it. I'm really asking it for their benefit because mm-hmm. I want people to think, okay, um, am I really willing to evaluate the evidence critically? Uh, is there evidence that would convince me? What would that look like? Does that exist? Those are the questions that people need to ask. Otherwise, uh, they're going to be trapped in this mindset where Evidence is just something to explain away. Evidence is just something to to push out of their mind or come up with an alternate explanation for, and they're not thinking about whether their belief is something that's actually dependent on evidence.
1: Very interesting answer. You have unpacked a lot here for me to think about,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and All that's right. why I was. That's why I do this this podcast. Ultimately, is to get inside people's heads and figure out why exactly they change their mind. What does that thought process look like? And I so appreciate you taking the time to walk me through so many of these things and uh, be patient with me. <laughs> no so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a pleasure. And I think that you're giving the listener at home a lot to think about as well. You can follow David on medium and read his work there. You can search David McMillan. It's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N. He has a lot of articles on this subject that you may find of interest no matter what side that you come down on. So go check that out. And don't remember, I mean, where's my brain today? I didn't get a lot of sleep last night because my my infant woke up five times. Okay. <laughs> don't remember. Don't forget that you can text or call the flip phone at 323-999-1802 with thoughts on this episode. You can flip out or try to flip my position. Or you can tell me how you flip-flopped, and I mean that in the most loving way possible. That's 323-999-1802, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Give the podcast a review on iTunes if you like it. It really helps to get this in front of more ears, and I would really appreciate it. You can follow me, of course, on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman, where I do not hold back on my opinions on virtually everything. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless I love struggle though let me see who I am what I need who have got in the middle of the struggle Though let me see who I am what I need who I've got to be Executive produced by Kevin McCull, music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. What a need who have got in the middle of the struggle let me see who I am what I need who have got to be